The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Hi and welcome to uh, the latest This Must Be The Place, a podcast about things like Elizabeth, I can't remember, space, place, I being a disgrace. I think we society and, and stuff, but essentially place. Place, yes. Someone said on a review that it was about Melbourne. Melbourne. Oh really, as if. Thank you for that <laughs> review. Uh, it might be a bit about Melbourne. My name is David Nichols. I'm a, a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne. And I'm Elizabeth Taylor. I'm a research fellow or postdoctoral research fellow at RMIT University. It's a real university. And nobody ever said it wasn't. There was that um, episode of the catering, or the predecessor to the catering show, where I think there was that. There was aspersions cast on it. Where she said, I'm working at RMIT now, and the other person's like, oh, like TAFE. <laughs> <laughs> and what are we talking about today? The main content. The main content today is an interview that I did uh, on September the 19th of last year. Uh, when I was um, a visiting scholar at the University of Tampere in Finland, and uh, I was talking to um, uh, Dr. Levin Emil about his book, Helsinki in Early 20th Century Literature, Urban Experiences in Finnish Prose Fiction, 1890 to 1940, which kind of sounds dry and arcane and archaic and all of those things. Um, it's it's a fascinating book, and it, it is actually, um, I'll say I'll say this, uh, it's completely downloadable for free. Uh, so if you find this, uh, the, the interview that I did with uh, Levin interesting, then you should uh, most definitely uh, get a hold of the book. It's fascinating. It's one of those things like I'm a finophile, okay? So mm-hmm. I, I'm sort of, I'm always interested in stuff. Lehman trolls and things like that. I knew you'd bring. I That's my only Finnish reference. Tro- <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, Tampere has the uh, the Lehman Museum, actually. But um, I'm a... I'm a big fan and um, always fascinated by things in Finland. And I'm uh, interested particularly, I know this probably sounds a bit peculiar, but I'm interested in Finnish nationalism, partly because I see a lot of commonalities between uh, Finland and and Australia in all kinds of ways. Does that include, I mean, I haven't heard the interview yet, but the way Helsinki is represented, is it sort of like the nationalism is based on a a rural identity? Exactly. Yeah. A lot of Finnish, Finnish nationalism is about, um, particularly in the 19th century, was about, um, you know, being the ties to the soil kind of stuff. And uh, so there's a there's a, a lot of uh, unease when it comes to, I mean, partly just the creation of the Finnish state, which, uh, if I remember correctly, happened in 1917, so 100 years ago. Uh, and also uh, Helsinki as a, as a rapidly growing uh, national capital. So there's a lot of uh, kind of, and and we talk about this in the interview. There's a lot of, uh, you know, people sort of thinking, one, wondering, worrying about uh, what makes what makes being a Finn unique. Um, if you can't be a, um, you know, if you if you're going to be a city dweller in the the new city of Helsinki, and you're just going to sort of, um, you know, hitch your wagon to all those tropes of modern urban living, then is it like you could be anywhere. You could be anywhere, exactly, and and we do touch on that a little bit uh, in the interview. I mean, you know, the Finns had 
they were they really and a little like the Australians in this sense. And I, I mean, I'm, I might be pushing that too much, but I feel like a little like the Australians. The Finns kind of um, have have had a long time grappling with what makes them special. And is and that part been, of being a new country as well? Or? But it also comes from being uh, owned by the Swedes and owned by the Russians, and uh, the elite of uh, Finland spoke Swedish mm. for a long. A long time, and Swedish is still one of the the, nas- the two national languages there. So, you know, there's there is uh, a small um, Swedish only speaking population, which is hard to imagine. Uh, but then again, you look at Finnish, and if you're an English speaker like me, someone who's only ever spoken English really, apart from a brief flirtation with French that didn't go well, um, then you would go, yeah, well, Finnish is probably one of the most difficult languages anyone could yeah. ever. There's nothing recognisable in it, is there? There's no, in, as far as the language family. From, from an English point of view, there's very little, rec- in fact, from most languages' points of view. I parents think. got something to do with Hungarian, and I've just been reading a yeah. Paul Thoreau book, yeah. where it's, he's sort of, I guess he prides himself on speaking Brazilian languages, and he's listening to some people on a train, doesn't understand a word they're saying, and he's, yeah. well, he doesn't say Finnish, so it must be Hungarian. If you can't understand a word they're saying, it must be Hungarian. And I read somewhere, mm-hmm. disclaimer, neither of us know anything about languages, mm. um, that to the extent that Finnish has any relationship with any other language, it's Hungarian. I believe that there's there's some truth to that. It's a yeah. Look, it's a very difficult. I I came away from. I spent a month in um, in Finland last year, and I'd been there twice before. And I came away this time with three words, three meaningless words. Can you say them on air? I mean, on on pod. I on. can try. <laughs> Ketos is one. That's easy. That's thank you. Uh huh. Moi is one that is just like you say it when you say when you mean hello or goodbye. You just like I'm not don't really know what it literally means, but you turn up, you say moi, you go away, you say moi, <laughs> and I think that was that's actually a slang term for the Tampere Tampere where I where I was at. Is that very in Spanish? Yeah, yeah. it means uh, you know moi bien, very good. Moi yeah, moi. I don't think it comes from. I don't think it's a Spanish. But uh, who knows, <laughs> Andrew? Who knows? And um, and the other one was cowpunky. That's a great word. What, what does it mean? Town. Sounds like a, I'm, not, I'm probably saying it wrong. I don't know. It's it K A U P U N K I. Sounds like a town where cows are have attitude or not. Yeah, actually, if you if I hadn't mentioned the word town, you wouldn't think it had anything to do with towns <laughs> at all. But uh, yeah, that was that's the other one that I came to recognise. So you know, if I go back to Finland, you know, uh, every year for the next twenty years, I will eventually, you know, on that basis i guess i'll have another 60 words by the end of that uh, by yeah 2037 so uh, and you your interview with with the leaven leaven yeah. um did you happen across him while you were studying you sort of saw well, a lecture or something as or? i say i was i was the um i was a visiting scholar at uh, the university of Tampere, and he was there so we we made contact um yes Is he in the history de- department or oh, look he's he's in a literature department department uh, i can't remember exactly what what he's in but he um he's actually uh belgian oh. and he's a um so he's and he his first language is dutch uh and obviously as you'll hear in the interview his english is excellent and he taught himself finnish apparently just sort of you know as an adult which stuns me mm. um because maybe he's like 200 years old and he picked up three words well, a year. Well, he could be, yeah. That's still yeah. not enough. That's still not enough, is it? Um, so he'd have 600 words, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so, but he, so yeah, he does stunningly well to be able to do that, to be able to read all those works of uh, Finnish 
literature, which probably, well, I don't know for a fact, but, you know, probably quite um, old-fashioned Finnish as well mm. um, from, uh, you know, 100 years ago, and to write a book in presumably uh, initially in Finnish and then in English, it's quite an achievement. Mm. And as I say, it's downloadable. It's a fascinating um, book and it's uh, it's well worth reading. Um we were going to talk about what we've been doing lately just for, you know, the people who've uh, come to enjoy us as personalities. But maybe we should do that after the interview and yeah, we'll just go idea. straight into the interview and then we'll... Uh... And we were going to, you were going to preface the interview by saying... That oh, the, the, the thing that I was... Question. That's right. The, the thing that, um, that I started off saying to, uh, to Levin was, I mean, I, I alluded to it just then, but the, um, the difficulty that I had coming to grips with a study, a fascinating study of a range of novels written in Finnish in the early 20th century when absolutely none of them were available in uh, in English. I couldn't go and, and check any of them out in English translation because they're just not translated into English. So that's how we started. Traditionally, the Finnish literature wasn't translated much. I mean, now we're talking about the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. Um, not that much was translated uh, in, in general. And I think that was one of the reasons as well why um, I wanted to do research about these particular novels because they haven't, they are not very well known internationally. But as a scholar, by uh, writing about them, you might actually, I, I hope at least, that I might have given the incentive to translators, perhaps even publishers, to look into these, because there's a lot of really interesting um, texts that uh, are certainly worth um, translating. Uh, I think the only text that is has been partly translated is the um, is a, a short story by Johanny Aho, uh, Towards Helsinki, or To Helsinki, which was partly translated in, into into English. But then another reason why uh, so little has been translated is, and I think this has to do with the uh, more general, um, uh, I think, uh, ideology also behind uh, my my research, which was to reassess the importance of city literature in Finnish cultural history. And uh, when um, Finnish literature gets translated, Actually, quite often, what what publishing houses wanted is the perceived image of Finland, and I think the same might go for Australia or why not even from Latin American literature or African literature that there's already this perceived image of what this literature is all about, and we want to have more of that. So, in, in the case of Finland, a rural um, uh, backgrounds, uh, Arctic hysteria. Uh, Lapland Exotica and now that in the Nordic countries there's this boom of, of, of crime novels then also crime novels but very little apart from that so Johanny Aho for example he, he has been translated but his uh, books that were set in the countryside have been translated and uh, the same can be said for at least a few other uh, of the authors that I looked at some of these authors have been translated but not the books that are set in the city simply because they are not really what you perhaps would expect of it. And I've worked uh, as a translator uh, 
Finnish to Dutch. Uh, Dutch is my mother tongue uh, as a Belgian. And I've uh, come across a lot of uh, publishers in the Netherlands and in Belgium, and they seem to have this perceived idea of what their readers will be interested in reading Finnish literature. And it's usually not uh, necessarily what actually what's what, what the most interesting Finnish authors are writing about at all. Mm-hmm. Yes, so it it seems that from the English point of view, if it doesn't have a moment in it, then um, there's uh, mm. there's not that much interest in English speaking world. There's there's obviously, and particularly at the beginning of the twentieth century, there's this this perceived you know um, uh, kind of contrast uh, between what is expected of a of a national literature, I suppose, of a mm. country like Finland, and we have a similar situation in Australia, that it's uh, as you say, it's primarily uh, rural. So Novels about Helsinki, what would that, if you could put a, a random uh, percentage, what would be the, the, the number of, or the percentage of uh, Helsinki novels as opposed to, you know, rural Finnish epics, national epics? Mm. Uh, I, w- I would have no idea uh, what to answer, um, but I have no idea about the percentages. But the thing is that um, even authors that are perceived to be authors who are typical for describing rural environments have um, have a strong legacy also in, in, in describing uh, the city and, 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 and the capital. So there's um, authors such as uh, Johanny Aho, who I mentioned already, who is very much a an, 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 an cosmopolitan intellectual writing often about cities and about modernization. Um, but uh, his canonized work is mostly based on the countryside. And then there's a, a female author called uh, Maila Talvio, who is also perceived to be one of the more traditional uh, describers of the countryside. But she has written 11 um, novels set in, in Helsinki. And perhaps I think the most uh, strange example is Eino uh, Leino, uh, who is most well known as a, as a, a poet. Oh, uh, yeah, and he's... Um, He's a poet of uh, national romantic, symbolic or symbolist literature and love poems as well. But he also wrote uh, more than 10 novels and prose texts set in Helsinki, but they are almost completely, completely forgotten. So um, it's uh, at the same time, there seems to be a very rich literature of the city, but it has it has somehow fallen into the faults of, uh, of literary history. Uh, regardless of the um, uh, of, of the importance to my to my view, I think one of the one of the elements that might have led to uh, to this is that this is idea that the national history or national literary history has to be somehow um, it has to have it has to be different from other histories. So it has to focus on what's different. But uh, so so cosmopolitanisms and, and city and modernization descriptions are somehow perceived to be very generic and so um, that's why they seem to have been written outside of national liter- literary history but the result is that that if you look at um, a lot of national histories of these kind of fringe nations uh, Estonia, Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium um, it's kind of peripheral uh, uh, countries uh, whose national literature I know a bit is that they are very generic in the sense that they all focus on 
rural descriptions and and uh, poor people uh, to to perhaps put it a little bit black and white or, or underprivileged people and uh, tend not to look so much at at uh, cities and urban environments and modernization even though that could have been the case so you end up having a generic national history anyway yeah yeah that makes sense so I, I notice also and i think this is also a part of that contrast and the kind of the the ambivalence about cosmopolitan areas that the the Helsinki that you describe that comes through in so many of these novels uh, is uh, often quite an evil, sinister, dangerous place. There's a lot of discussion in there, obviously a lot of accounts in those novels of women being uh, molested or raped in these kinds of... this and, and just kind of um, pen portraits, fascinating as you describe them, of, um, you know, their the masses of people in this very um, uh, horrifying uh, and uh, disturbing um, accounts. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, one of the one of the fascinating things, and perhaps that that's why why cities have always fascinated me so much, is that they they it it's easy to use a city in literature as somehow a metaphor or an an, an allegory of. Uh, human capacity for good and evil basically and that, that that's in cities you have people from all walks of life and they have all, all kinds of various experiences everything that the human mind and, and, and human human agency is capable of is is, is um, made possible in in cities perhaps more so than in other environments and so of course you you tend to have these these very um, very diverse and often very very gloomy descriptions of what human beings are capable of. Uh, one of the things that I try to emphasize in, in, in my book, um, Helsinki in Early 20th Century Literature, is however also the extent to which uh, literature is a child of its own time in the sense that um, the first descriptions uh, in Helsinki were written at a time when literature was or tended to be very critical of society and what was going wrong in society. So it tended to focus on negative elements in society that people should uh, react upon. So these descriptions of uh, prostitution or um, uh, women being being uh, uh, raped or, or harassed in, in public public space were, were meant to um, uh, have people react in the period 1890 till, till 1920, roughly speaking. So, so it's not necessarily, uh, I would say that it's not necessarily the case that things were better or worse before or after, but, but it was simply expected from literature at that time to, to give such an account of life. There's a one author that you talk about actually provides a play on words using the similarity between the Finnish word for hell and the yes. and the name Helsinki, and uh, I was and there is a kind of a strand of if not if not a moralistic strand there's a you know a, there's the kind of the con condemnatory strand that I that I mentioned and 
uh, I guess it led me to wonder whether there's a, you don't make too much of this, but whether there's a kind of a religious aspect to this condemnation of the city that um, is predominant in Finland in the early 20th century? Um, perhaps, yes and no. On, on one hand, <coughs> I think that this is a, this is a, a global international phenomenon in the sense that city literature always has this strong background in biblical and, and antique accounts of cities as uh, repositories of, of sin and as places where, where, where good intentions come to nothing. So, um, so, so this, is, this is something that is, that is age old. But then in, in Finland in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a strong, um, almost Puritan uh, outlook on life. There was just large sections of society that had a pretty austere um, uh, view of, of what it was to lead the good life. So there were still large people, large amounts of people who uh, didn't think that playing music or listening to music was actually an accepted way of, of, of going about living. And, and there was, um, and of course, the or dressing up uh, in, in, in a fashionable way was, was thrown upon in a certain circles. So, and, and still there is a, substantial uh, Bible Belt in, mm. in Finland and so even though you don't see this um, very very uh, prominently or spelled out in the literature it's certainly uh, at the background hmm. I and there is also a um, you you give a description of a quite a fascinating setting novel once again this is towards the end of the book where there's a, a character who is essentially the devil mm. who is um, it's a it sounds it sounds brilliant it sounds funny it sounds mm. like it's both funny and uh, and quite uh, potentially quite uh, affecting and uh, and disturbing as well I, maybe you could tell tell us a little bit yeah. about that particular yeah, it's called um, um, it's called Henke and Taistelu the Battle of the Spirits by the author Joel Lehtonen is one of the and he's he's his work has been translated but again the book that has been translated is a book um or as far as i know it's, it's been translated in, in a number of languages books that in, in the countryside but this book henkin taistelo is uh, a book that he wrote one year before he committed suicide in the early 1930s and it's uh, it's it's a book set in helsinki in which the devil uh goes around with um uh, a man who is quite optimistic about life, but the devil wants to show him uh, that things are just horribly and terribly wrong. And then he starts out from this optimistic character to a completely pessimistic and depressed character who wants to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And then eventually that's, that's a course of action that the author took, took as well. So, so at the background was, of course, the political, um, uh, politically very... Uh, uh, turbulent times uh, of radicalization, which was felt in, in Finland as well in, in the 1930s. And um, also the the atmosphere um, of dancing on the volcano, so to speak, both in, a, in, 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 in society at large, the early 1930s had seen the end of the prohibition in Finland. So the battle of the spirits was could be seen as an, an allegory for the battle between fascism and communism, or between the reds and the whites, or, or more generally the kind of uh, the dance of death to the tune of uh, pro prohibition, alcohol, and, and 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 jazz music. 
if if I remember correctly, and I hope I haven't mixed up two mm. narratives here, but is this the book that ends with the the protagonist sees an abattoir? Yes, yes, yes and indeed. that's um, and you then you then draw in the um, uh, things like the Upton Sinclair um, mm. book about Chicago that um, yeah. was obviously freely available in Finland at that yes. time, and you you make those uh, a fascinating contrast. Mm. Uh, but then he then. Once again, I don't, yeah. I don't think we can. We can. I don't know what to make of this, and I don't know what you make of it. But he's then, he the author says, well, you know, he's become a vegetarian yep. from this experience. Mm. He might as well die because he can't enjoy a good steak. Yeah, and then he dies in a random accident. It sounds yes. very. It sounds almost, almost postmodern. It sounds almost like something you'd encounter yes. in a yes. maybe nineteen sixties or seventies. Yes, you know. Yeah. Uh, Actually, I think I think it. This book, as as a lot of books in in in. in Literary history prove that actually, the these concepts as modernist and postmodern are are not very useful perhaps because mm. there's so many literary texts that you find using specific kinds of techniques um, before the actual period starts and this goes for modernist and postmodern literature. So this is indeed this is a very self-conscious novel. Mm. Um, uh, the uh, the American literary critic Robert Alter has written a book I think already in the 70s or 80s called the self-conscious or the novelist self-conscious genre in which he doesn't talk about postmodernism but about all these texts from antiquity onwards that have been very self-conscious about how they how they produce reality and and have been playing with 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 different ways of presenting reality in a way that we would call postmodern mm. but, but that is um and so this is a novel and i think this is this is one of the most interesting Novels um, from the 1920s and 30s written in in, in Finland, um, but even within within Finnish national history, it's been largely forgotten. I think it hasn't it has been out of print for, for for quite some time, and it hasn't been translated in in um, in any other language. And and again, one of the reasons is because especially exactly because of it, its its uh, literary cosmopolitanism as, as well. It draws on a wide range of literary genres, literary text. It has a it explicitly mentions a lot of uh, texts from Nordic literary history, from from uh, from international city texts, and and I think one of the strange uh, things about that novel in particular as well that I like is that even though you have this uh, pessimist atmosphere and you have this this sense of um, utter despair, the reason behind this this is a, a, a humanist perspective, the hope that man could be good and could do good and then the despair at realizing that unfortunately uh, at that time perhaps in particular um, that hope uh, could not stand up to 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 reality so so at at the background is uh, i think a kind of humanism that i that i appreciate in literature very much There's one one thing which I don't think you cover, which is you know obviously outside the the scope of of what you're looking at. But um, I don't know if you have any um, particular insight into this. But how are these how are these books generally uh, received at the time, and mm. were they discussed and criticised, mm. and you know were they widely read? Yeah. Um, many of these novels were uh, fairly widely read, and 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 were. Um, they they were uh, they were reviewed actively, but um, I must perhaps say say something first about the, what novels I I looked at in in my book and basically I 
um, examined all uh, prose texts written in Finnish that um, that uh, uh, thematized Helsinki in one way or another during this period, 1819 to 1940. So, so I, I, my aim was to examine all of them, but in the, every separate chapter, I took one novel as a, as a key text, and then I connected the other novels to them. But so. Um, let's say that since I covered all of them uh, in uh, some of these texts were at the fringes of uh, of, of uh, cultural life obviously and some were rather popular novels that got very little attention in, in, in academic circles and then some of them were um, the other way around but uh, but many of the texts and I would say all of the texts that I that I discussed as, as key novels uh, or key literary texts were um, uh, part of uh, I think the most well-received um, books or, or texts in their own decades. So, so in, within their own time frame, they were certainly uh, functioning actively mm -hmm. and, and widely. Because I guess what um, one of the things that once again is you know you don't explicitly touch on, but which you do mention periodically, the the historical context. You know, Finland becomes a independent nation in 1917 which mm. is obviously a century ago and I imagine that there is some kind of um, keen interest as there certainly was in Australia in 1901 when Australia became a nation of okay well what kind of nation is it going to be and to what extent is it going to have you know this, this harks back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago but to what extent is it going to be unique and to what extent is it going to have um, the same things as every other country and you, you do um, you know there are there are points at which you um, I think once again it's uh, sorry I, I have no a no understanding of the Finnish language and b no memory for Finnish words but the um, the, the devil novel that we talked about a minute ago that the, there's a kind of suggestion that the, the devil won't go to Paris you know doesn't want to go to Paris and mm -hmm. you know to enact his deeds he he chooses a smaller place to go mm -hmm. to uh, to visit um, so I guess the, the the question really is you know. Is there a concern about uh, the the potential for uniqueness in the new nation of Finland in these books, or is there a, is there a concern that uh, the new nation of Finland uh, is just going to become another mm. another nation, another European nation, you know, with a lot of yeah. the same qualities and problems? I think I think it would perhaps frame frame it. A little bit differently, and 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 think that the, in in all of these periods, there's been uh, people who felt strongly about what it what is supposed to be to be a Finn, but in every single period, there were people who would feel strongly, but would have completely different opinions about what it would be to to be a Finn. So in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, in in the literature, there was a, there was still a strong uh, uh, say struggle struggle going on about actually basic things such as what is the position of the Finnish language in in Finland because uh, the language of the elite had long been uh, Swedish and then then there was this this um, this idea of, of, of how to square uh, two different linguistic um, groups within the same. Um, the same nation, but I think that as long as uh, actually the these multi-ethnic empires such as the the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empires and the Ottoman Empires, they 
managed to cater quite well for diverse linguistic um, uh, groups but then when these split up and became nation states then there was a strong drive to uh, ease out all uh, heterogeneity quite quite rapidly so, so that that's one thing that you see um, happening in the 1920s and 1930s that that um, that from uh, having to be cosmopolitan because because of course Finns needed uh, needed context abroad to to defend their rights I think uh, perhaps uh, the same can be said for for the Irish before before Ireland became independent that a lot of the uh, Irish activists had to be quite cosmopolitan and quite international because because the political circumstances demanded demanded that, that they would do be, be doing so but then after independence there was this kind of turning inwards um, and I think in the 1920s was perhaps more of a funny and 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 jubilant turning inward but then in the 1930s it started getting a little bit more grim because of the international political and, and uh, economic situation and then that that reflected on, on, on literature mm. as well uh, that um, basically especially in the 1930s literature was supposed to uh, embrace these kind of robust nationalist values uh, and particular images of what what, what, what Finland and, and Finnish people were supposed to be like I think it, it's only much later in in the 1960s and 70s or uh, with the big uh, waves of contestation that there that there was a more of a general consensus that you, that that, it, that that one was able to uh, to question some of these uh, perceived truths about what what Finland finishes could be be like. But during all these decades, of course, you would have uh, urban women and Finland Swedish authors um, who had very little. Uh, uh, to say in that perceived image of Finnishness, who would continue writing interesting mm. novels and interesting texts and, and, and poetry, and, um, and, and and they would always be there uh, as well. I think they they've always presented interesting, contrasting uh, images to to what what literature can say about about a nation. Is that is that a, is that an insulting <laughs> thing to say about you? Uh, it's I think I think if you if you say it to me, uh, I don't feel it's it's insulting. But if if um, if a Finn would say it to me, I would probably be not oh, really? very okay. happy. Right. I, I guess what I mean is we're we're outsiders. We didn't no. we didn't grow up here. Mm. We've we've come here, no. and you 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 live here. Mm. I've, I'm an occasional visitor mm. every few years. But um, what I have noted, and I once again I. Mm. This might show me to be just a total provincial, but I see a lot of similarities with Australia in this regard. Although Australia, of course, mm. the main language is English, a, a global language. Um, nevertheless, uh, I feel that um, when I uh, talk to people about, for instance, very local history issues, mm. whatever, which is something that I'm I'm interested in, they kind of they're like, well, why would anybody else be interested mm. in that except you know us? Mm. The you know, mm. and I, I wonder if that's a if that's a particularly Finnish attribute, or a, it is a Finnish attribute to mm. sort of, um, uh, it's almost a modest thing in a mm. way. It's like, well, we we're interested in this because this is about us. But why mm. would the rest of the world be interested? Yeah. Is that is that 
a thing local yeah uh, I guess in in a sense but um, I I would imagine that there's there's a lot of people to well I, I guess I guess it it depends again on on how people see not only Finland as Finland but Finland, Finland as, as globally I think it's for somebody who came from somewhere else it's rather easy to see Finland as part of its global context. I mean, for example, for a lot of Finns don't appreciate how much of their institutions and language as well um, comes from the Nordic context and how actually in in a global perspective, they're not often seen as, as Finland per se, but they are seen as Finland as a part of a Nordic context. And I think it's perfectly perfectly fitting because because they are a Nordic context and, and the food they eat and, and or the food we eat, because I'm, I'm actually a Finn by now as well, food we eat and, and the the uh, kind of cities that we live in and the institutions we have and the education system and the social security system we have is is profoundly Nordic and the way we, we see democracy and we see the state functioning and and we see we see press functioning is quite different from the way that would be the case in France or Italy or, or, or Belgium for that matter so it's it's a very Nordic uh, context but but Finns um, I think there are some friends who appreciate that and some who are, I would say, fairly ignorant about that, because because I, I would say that it's fairly objective, uh, conclusion. And and the same would go for for how how this country is 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 part of, of globalizing globalizing movements and how it has been for a very very long time. I mean, uh, this this was uh, this country is christened uh, by outsiders like a lot of European nations, and then it was. Um, it went through the Reformation, like a lot of Europe, European nations, and then went to uh, modernization and globalization, and now it's in a post-industrial uh, position. And that means that a lot of the things that are happening here can have relevance because they reflect on how similar processes have been happening in, in other countries. So uh, I think once you see the context, then I think the Finland becomes interesting, not particularly because of its kind of imagined exceptionality, but because exactly because it's specific position in in globalized environments and in in, 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 in international networks. Don't know whether that was an answer to the question. No, that is an answer to my question, exactly. And I was thinking at the same time that um, Finland is to my mind a country that historically has defined itself partly not what it is so much as what it isn't. And you know, so it's defined itself against Sweden and and Russia, the two mm-hmm. two occupiers um, on either side over time, and also has that um, unique, which is reflected in the language, that uh, the the ethnic mm-hmm. aspect to the to many of the most of the people that mm-hmm. um, is also and there's also on top of that uh, a class dimension as well. That as mm-hmm. you mentioned, um, Swedish was the the language of the elite, uh, and I. I gather from reading your work and others that you know there's a um, there's quite a uh, dichotomy is not the word the word is there's just, there's unease about the language mm. you know until mm. you know even in the early twentieth century I would imagine you know some um, and still today still still, okay. still today yeah sure of course yeah there's, there's still quite a bit of there's a there's a people in the Finnish government today who would like to see all Finn and Swedes take the boat to Sweden, even though they have been here for 900 years. So, right, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there's, there's, um, yeah, there's, there's, mm. there's certainly some, some uneasiness, and I think this, this, this probably goes, 
goes in waves. But, but I think I think again that that is that is typical for I think for a lot of nations. I mean, we 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 perhaps tend to forget that 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 countries such as um, France that they are historically not monolingual at all. For example, that that they they have a very complex uh, linguistic history that that has I mean that has been resolved by basically well language genocide so to speak mm-hmm. of course uh, not 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 physical but uh, by by just uh, letting languages die out um, over the course of centuries and and and, and the same goes for uh, for a lot of other other nations as well mm-hmm. so I think think here again it's a uh, it's it's something in which Finland is interesting and and just as France or Belgium or, or uh, Canada, Switzerland, um, so many other, Spain obviously, uh, the UK are very interesting. To go back to your book, specifically and the way that Helsinki is portrayed in, in that book it's often as an expanding um, place that you know there's always things being pulled down there's always you know there's a there's a streak of sentimentality in there in terms of you know my old wooden house is is being demolished um, those those kinds of elements that once again I, I'm assuming that that expresses a kind of unease about the pace of change and I think a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of what this uh, is, uh, is a is a fear of um, of change and well, not to sound judgmental about it, but a fear of progress in a sense. And is that is that something that you see uh, as as predominant at, at the time, or, or why is that reflected so strongly in these books? I think I think it has to do also with with how city literature um, works um, uh, more generally, and mm. I think it has to do with, with with two things. The first thing is that that City literature often describes cities in their history, and so you have the progression of time and how the city changes, and then you have uh, the human progression as well. So a character arrives in the city or grows up and 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 makes makes a mark on on society. But quite often, the the time or the speed between the environment and the speed of the protagonists is is different. So either because because in the city, time is standing still, so to speak. It's a museum city, city such as Bruges or, or mm. Venice, and then the, the protagonist is moving very rapidly. Or the other way around, which happens quite often in, in city literature, that the protagonist is moving slowly, but the city is, is going fast, which means that people feel that they are out of tune. And it's um, it's what, what I think uh, Robert Pike, in his study of the city uh, in literature, has called this kind of syncopatic rhythms in city literature. That, have this this idea of being out of out of tune with one's environment that you can see in in uh, Charles Baudelaire, that you can see in, in Robert Musil's uh, work, uh, and and in I think all great city literature. So that's that, that's something that's diff- typical for the genre as well. And then obviously in particular times um, such as the turn of the 20th century, which which has been called let's say the the um, the 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 age of very rapid uh, change and the the vertigo years, uh, as as one, as one book has called it. Then then you have these very extremely rapid 
changes. But an, another aspect of civil literature is that it always, it never describes in full the real city. It's a literary de depiction, so it, it describes the city as possibility as well. And all cities are, apart from what they really are, they are also what, what they are becoming, and what they are turn, turning into. And I think that that's what makes the overlap between literary studies and then urban studies and urban planning studies so interesting because because you can see that in, in urban planning and in urban planning text but you can also see that in city literature that that you have this idea not just of what, what the city is but also what it is turning into and then how you as, as a human being how you how you feel about that and then obviously in in Helsinki in the period 1890 till 1940 it was one of the most rapidly uh, growing uh, capitals in in Europe, and it uh, it also uh, took on a lot of the big changes in society and technology very rapidly. The first uh, country to have universal uh, the right to vote, and and in in Europe, and and then um, and then 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 these these rapid technological changes that it embraced uh, uh, very swiftly. So so obviously in in such a period, you you have an acceleration of of uh, specific kinds of an easy description of a city as well in literature. Mm, mm, yeah. And that's, that comes through, like, in many different ways, that comes through time and time again in, the, uh, in your study, which, as I say, is, uh, I think it's really fascinating. And a, a testament to how fascinating it is, is that, you know, I did not, was not aware of any of the works that you discussed at all. But the way that you describe them and the way that you analyze them uh, and and you know contrast them with each other, it's uh, it's a really uh, it's a fascinating piece of work as both as a you know a bit of uh, as in the literary studies field, but also in the uh, as a historical text. I feel proud of myself for having maintained the conversation this far with going entirely on your uh, excellent book and and nothing more. So. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's been it's been great. I'll let, let you be, get back to your um, in, more important stuff. And um, this was important. Well, it, it was it was great to talk to you about it, and I really appreciate it. You are listening to an interview that I did. Uh, in September last year with uh, Dr. Levin Emil at the University of Tampere. Now, I had a question, David, Go. that may have been covered in this, but you uh, alluded before to the fact that uh, Finland was owned by the Swedes and there's a Swedish-speaking population. So even though these books aren't available in English, would there have been uh, a sort of some cross-pollination uh, between Swedish literature and Finnish literature about cities and sort of Ibsen and things like that? Yeah, you'd probably better ask an expert. Right. <laughs> I, I don't really know the answer to that, but what I do get a sense of, and, you know, I'm probably going into territory that I don't fully understand, but I have a, a sense that uh, Finnish was the language of a particular group, a particular cultural group within Finland, and um, it was probably when it comes down to it, not just ethnic, but also class-based. Mm -hmm. And so um, perhaps some people didn't read other people's literature or, or engage with it too much. Mm. There's a whole world of like craziness that, you know, you could probably live there for 40 years and never understand 
the the subtleties of the the different relationship the, the relationships between for instance the Swedes and the and the Finns mm. uh, when I was in Tampere probably the first couple of days there was um, there was some kind of Swedish Finnish um, you know friendly society kind of thing going on so there were these Swedish people like of all ages mainly men wandering through town looking really freaking grim mm. with Swedish like paraphernalia on them just like walking around looking miserable and the, the friendly um, they were being friendly yeah uh-huh. they're being friendly Swedes in Finland <laughs> they're but, not killing you or something no they're not <laughs> that's right we come in peace no I think the thing is that this the you know the the Swedes like the Finns always feel like the Swedes are looking down on them yeah but the Finns probably secretly know they're better I don't know yeah Something like that. Yeah, speculation. But that's, that's a good answer. It's like the New Zealand-Australian relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Very yeah, similar, bigger. I'd say. It's a much bigger population than Sweden, surely. I would oh, say so. Yeah. There's six million Finn. Yeah. What a great size for a country, though. Isn't it fantastic? Mm. It's kind of like Melbourne and hinterlands. That's the country. Yeah. Yeah. Finland is pretty much the Victoria of, yeah, of, of Europe. Yeah. So we were going to finish up with a bit of... Um, for those that are still listening, yeah, sort of what Hi. we've been doing on our break and stuff. <laughs> this is like the that. podcast that helps you get to sleep. Sorry, go <laughs> on. <laughs> um, what we did over our break. So again, we won't go into the whole details, but last weekend on Australia Day, actually, I went on a bike ride through Faulkner and Faulkner Cemetery, and that was I fabulous understand. cemetery. It's my favourite cemetery in Melbourne. Yeah, I was really surprised about. I mean, the sheer size of the place, mm. um, and also the railway station was mm-hmm. unusual. Do you know much about that? Or... The actual the actual station building? They've got a building and there's these odd sort of gate um, yeah. ramps with... Um, uh, I can't even think. It's just very decorative. And then they have a display of the old graveyard mm. hearse cart yeah. there. Um, what you... I know about uh, Faulkner is that they built a rail... You know, in their late... I guess the 1870s, 1880s, they were building railway lines everywhere... Mm. Uh, and they built one out to Faulkner and a little bit beyond, and nobody used it because there was nothing to do there, so they built a cemetery. They were <laughs> like, well, this will get a bit of action on the railway line. And so that's that's the the placement of the cemetery is totally about the railway line. Yep. And they did have, you know, uh, cemetery trains, you know, like they funeral could. trains. Yep. Um, they've got, when they pulled down bits of uh, Queen Victoria Market, uh, mm-hmm. the cemetery at Queen Victoria yep. Market. They relocated a cemetery from there in the centre of the city. They they put a lot of those... I don't know if they actually moved remains, but they moved the graves to Faulkner, the... Um, mm. I think it's called the Pioneers Yeah, I noticed cemetery. something. Actually, there's a little section called the Jewish Pioneers section. I don't know about the... Ju- oh, yeah, okay, so there's a Jewish one as well. But I'm not no, sure if yeah. that was relocated yeah, or yeah, what. Yeah, probably. I'd say it would have been, yeah. Mm. And... Um, Yes, designed by Charles Heath, the um, the well-known Coburg slash Geraldton architect, mm. who then became this 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 little detail always freaked me out. Became, then became the caretaker, so he like designed the place. Then he hung out there for decades. And is he buried there? We don't know. That would just be the perfect I think detail. He, I could be wrong, but I think his head is on a spike at the uh, <laughs> the gates. No, I don't know. Um, I'm sure he is. He'd have to be. He must have loved it, unless he really hated it. His son, uh, Frank Heath, became a very well-known architect in, yep. and planner in Melbourne in the mid, uh, 19th, uh, so mid-20th century, sorry, and was always, like, every time you see a Frank Heath plan, there's always a crematorium in it. Oh. So he, uh, he, was, he was an adherent to the, 
the uh, rad science of um, crem- cremation. Yeah. And in um, the university where I work, the University of Melbourne, there's uh, all the books about cremation in the architecture library are donations from Frank mm. Heath, <laughs> who grew up, you know, in the Faulkner Cemetery. Grew up in it, yeah. And this is the point at which cremation became legal. I should yeah, know I'm the answer. I'm not sure about that. I feel like we should. this would be something we're experts on, but... Yeah. Uh, it certainly was post... During a, during Melbourne's history, it became legal. Yeah. Well, I know that... I, what I do remember is coming across a newspaper article from the, in the late 19th century of um, some Hindus or something yeah. um, burning a body on the beach. Yes. And it was a... It was kind of like... I don't know if people really cared that much, but it was it was because that was their custom mm. and they wanted to do it, but they couldn't do it through the normal channels. Yep. Um in Melbourne, so that was um, that was a thing. I don't know whether I don't even know if it was illegal then, but uh, it might have been considered a public nuisance. Don't know why. <laughs> ashes. <laughs> uh, yeah, ashes. Know. And that's a. I also went to Beechworth. Do you know much about Beechworth? Not on not on Australia Day the weekend. Hey, ask me anything. It feels like let's ask David <laughs> about a place. What do you know about Beechworth? I know that you went mm. to Beechworth. Um, Asylum, right? Yes, yes, we stayed there. Which was one of the asylum, one of the nineteenth-century asylums that um, quite a few asylums in Victoria. They've been like nobody knows what to do with them. They don't. They don't want to pull them down. But mm. they don't. Did you Did you stay in the nurses' quarters? Yeah, the nineteen thirties nurses' mm-hmm. quarters, which are quite attractive. Yeah, they market them as the building. Art Deco quarters. Yeah, which, yeah. that's fair. Mm. Uh, did you go on a ghost tour? No, but we, we went on our own impromptu ghost tour. Oh, yeah. Um, what you say? We planned to go on that, but um, we just sort of were exploring the gardens, got a lot of old trees there, and then yeah. it got dark, and then we realised it was really dark, <gasps> and we saw the old... Um, so there's just buildings dotted everywhere, and it was the, the old lunchroom, I think, no. and you just look in there... <laughs> And Andrew's like... There's a story about the lunchroom. The, the staircase has all this moss on it, and he's like, it looks <laughs> oh. like blood. Oh, and really? The moss does look like blood. Yeah, you're right, Andrew. Yeah, good. <laughs> and good then he's call. wandering around, and sort of, a lot of the buildings are completely empty, mm. and others mysteriously had people living in them and things. Oh, that obviously, people, in inverted commas. Living in inverted commas. <laughs> Zombies. Yeah. <laughs> they're obviously in the fa- uh, process, as you say, like, what do we do with it? They're selling yeah. parts of it yeah. off. Yeah. Seems to be a church in one section, another one's nice. a sort of theatre, and... Yeah, so we had a, a bit of a wander. Us old fountains and things. We found an old phone box. That doesn't sound that spooky. It was at the time. And then no, the, if you called, did you make a call? We couldn't to get the in. Past? That would have oh, been great if it made yeah. it. Uh, if it I always remember that there was an amazing episode of the Twilight Zone once where mm-hmm. the telephone lines came down in a storm, went onto a grave, and the dead person in the grave called up people <laughs> that she knew. <laughs> yeah. So that's what Wasn't it the biggest building in Australia at some point? That's the, what it said up, on the sign there, yeah. Yeah, okay. It was pretty yeah. enormous. Yeah. Mm. Had a lot of crazy people back then. Mm. Um, should we? Uh, what did you do? On, and also went to Whittlesea today, but, you know. Whittlesea's cool. Yep. Uh, we went to the pool, and apparently they have botanical gardens. We didn't see that. Yeah. You got the ferry to St. Leonard's? Yes. Oh, man, you've been everywhere. I'm jealous of you guys. You go everywhere. Well, I just sit around and... Did you go anywhere? No. Oh. I don't know. I didn't know there were places you could go. Public transport. Oh, I've heard about that. Yeah, no. It doesn't... Just, you know, You're not really I'm, a summer... Is my type allowed? I'm not sure. You're not a summer person. I get that I know. Vibe. I'm definitely not a summer person. That's so true. So you're just hibernating. Yeah. I wait till winter, then I come out and stretch my wings. And, no. 
nothing nothing for me i'm getting some ideas though for perhaps we should um cover in more detail some cemeteries and asylums i think they're pretty pretty interesting seems like you know a bit about them so i reckon i do we could uh cemeteries i think are, are really really interesting but i also think that um as i've said to students who i i've often like in one of my lectures in my urban history subject um i often show students um the plan of the faulkner cemetery and i say you know fascinating plan it's really interesting well worth you know just examining for its you know from whenever it was 1900 1901 it's a it's a pretty um extraordinary design um and i have said in the past that i thought there was some kind of it had some kind of formative influence on um suburban design and in the subsequent decades and i'm pretty sure that's true mm. but um student and in a couple of cases students have actually uh, looked at cemetery stuff um in their uh, master's thesis and stuff like that but of course what you always have to say to them they can probably figure this out themselves but i say it anyway you don't go you don't rock up to people in cemeteries and say hey what do you think of the cemetery because they might be there for <laughs> for other reasons other reasons that are not just about their general love of cemeteries in a you know in the abstract so um so it's difficult it's a difficult subject mm. and you know i i think that um you know people there are histories of cemeteries that i've i've read in fact the history of Faulkner cemetery that i think is you know they you've got to be tasteful mm-hmm. and it's it's troublesome well, actually, ditto asylums, but, mm. but I mean, I guess all the people, almost all the people who lived in, um, who were, what's the word, inmates, clients, it I don't know, in those... not incarcerated, who were, who were guests. Guests, or... <laughs> guests, yes, um, were, are they no longer with us? Yeah, which is, um, in, on one hand, it means you can be a little more direct about what happened to them, but then, um, which can be good because you sort of un... Giving them a voice, but it's mm. also that level of disconnection. I know with Sunbury Asylum there was a project to have a, um, a more like a lot of people now doing. We we're talking before about ancestry research. A lot of mm. people doing ancestry research, they they find out that their relatives mm. were in mm. ended up at Sunbury Asylum in an unmarked grave, and that yeah. that's led to uh, a, a sort of memorial wall with all the names on it because otherwise it wouldn't have been yeah. there. So yeah, I mean ghosts don't care. You could, mm. you could interview the Beechworth ghosts. They're happy. They'll be happy to tell you about their what happened to them. Mm-hmm. But of course, the, a lot of the stories of even even well into the twentieth century, a lot of the stories of people who end up stuck in asylums are you know they're not crazy by our standards. They're just um, you know atypical or mm. problematic in various ways, mm. which can be confronting for some people. They want to have that. Oh, is it the word absolution? You know, they want to feel like. Um, sort of serving some justice to their relative who was, by our standards, not crazy. Just, mm. um, you know, off common case would be postnatal depression or something exactly. like that. But on the others, there's, there's still, amongst older people, a lot of shame about it, so they don't yeah. put for another show, Pat. Well, let's, let's put that on the list. Well, we yeah. do have some other things coming up, but, you know, let's not promise too much. So I hope that our listeners enjoyed... Uh, today's show do we have anything else to announce announce oh we can put the um links and stuff i mean we have shows coming up but i like i said we should just do the shows and then let's do them yeah yeah and and this must be the place perhaps do if you if you feel like it 
do a review. That would be great. They always say that at the end of the podcast, don't they? Yeah. If you're still listening now, like, you deserve your you own deserve, review. You deserve Top to do listener. a review, yeah. <laughs> you're the greatest. We'll review you if you review us.